The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for your kindness in drawing us here together, your kindness in committing yourself to building up your people. Apart from that, Lord, we would be adrift in a vast sea all by ourselves, powerless. But you have drawn near. You have drawn us together to yourself and promised to build us up and then carry us home. Thank you. Lord, do more of that this morning now with this passage before us. Will you take what's here? Will you press it into us and mature us and grow us up? Lord, do that work that we need you to do, the spiritual work of shaping our hearts and minds, making us like Christ. And will you from this, Lord, will you produce in us joy? but joy that is real, joy that is deep, joy that has taken all of this extremely seriously. And because we've taken it seriously, know what it is to rejoice. Do the work that our words can't. Do the spiritual work in our hearts. Shape us, grow us up, do us this good, and bring honor to your name. Here we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We're continuing on this week with our search for the good life, a life that every person on earth, Christian included, everybody wants. And in fact, as we saw, it's the life that God calls Christians to, not just that we want it, it's that we have to have it. He made us for this life. He called us to live it out, the kind of life that others would look at and envy. So we find Jesus teaching us here in these Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Statements about blessedness, that's where we get the word beatitude. Characteristics of the Christian as he's telling us what we are, what we are to be, therefore what we are to strive after. They're not a recipe, we talked about this last week, they're not a recipe or a, or a pattern to be followed, a path to be walked so as to become a Christian. These statements are written to people who already are Christians. It has in view everybody else also, but it's written to people who already are Christians, telling us what we are. Here's you. What we are to be. Here's what I'm calling you after, calling you into, and it's the good life mentioned this last week, and as you hear that, perhaps it sort of piques your interest and you think, okay, the good life, I'm listening. And then what you hear first is odd, maybe shocking. Last week, right off, first statement, Jesus starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble and lowly, before God, who think very little of themselves and are broken before him. You hear that and, you, and maybe you think like, wait a minute, how is that the beginning of the good life? How is that a path to a life that is, that is envied? Because of what comes next. There's 
is the kingdom of heaven, the experience of living under the good, wise, powerful, merciful reign of Christ. Under his reign, in his kingdom, that's what the poor in spirit have, and that's the best of all possible existences. Life in the kingdom of God with Jesus as loving ruler. That's good. And it's for the humble and lowly in spirit, the one realizing his and her utter dependence on God for all of help. That's the one who gets God's help. That was last week. And now this week, verse 4, the second beatitude, starts there, carries that then into another statement, which is very closely related, but is going to get us thinking more about sin on the day we talked about joy. Uh-huh. Exactly. Because thinking very clearly about sin is what actually leads to deep joy. So that's what we're going to look at today in the second beatitude, verse 4. Let me read it, and then we'll just break it into two halves. Jesus continues, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Two halves. We'll just take the first part first. We begin with blessed are those who mourn. And as we saw last week, that word blessed is kind of an unusual kind of religious word. A good way to think of it, whenever you hear that again and again, week after week, you can just substitute in a phrase. We hear blessed, think to be congratulated and envied for your good situation. Blessed. To be congratulated and envied for your good situation. Who's, who's that? Who's envied? Who's in a good situation? Those who mourn, which seems completely counterintuitive, maybe even a bit crazy. How can that be a good thing? How does mourning lead to a good situation? Well, we're going to see that. This phrase, like last week's phrase, poor in spirit, it's a statement about a spiritual reality. He is not talking about the kind of mourning that everybody experiences for circumstances that happen in life, like mourning the death of a friend or a loved one. That's, that's not what he's, what he's thinking about. Christians and non-Christians alike both experience that kind of mourning. I mean, he's talking about something here that is uniquely true of a Christian. And plus, if he was talking about that, it would make almost no sense because it would be to say something like, blessed are those who mourn over the death of friends because those are the ones who are comforted. It, it's almost a contradiction. It would make no sense. Clearly, that's not what he's getting at. Rather, what he means is a sorrowful and lamenting downcast heart attitude. Mourning. A sorrowful and lamenting downcast heart attitude that comes from seeing the sin and fallenness in the world. It's the idea carried throughout a number of different Bible passages. Think of Psalm 119, verse 136. The psalmist writes, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He's mourning as he sees law-breaking sin. Or Ezekiel 9, verse 4. God there, before a period of judgment, God favorably marks off and kind of sets aside those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed. Sighing and groaning over all the abominations that are being committed all around. 
There, lots of other places, you could go on forever, lots of other places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament alike carry this very same idea of sighing or inward groaning or weeping or mourning or sorrow, downcastness. It's the frequent response of God's people when they look out and they see sin in the world all around them. That's what Jesus is talking about. Seeing sin and the fallen world and mourning everywhere in the Bible. And in fact, it's in Jesus himself. In Isaiah, Jesus is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why is that? Because he of everybody, he of everybody saw what was going on in the world, understood it, knew it, and it broke his heart. Grieved him to see the state of, the current state of even, this world. That's Christ into whose image we are being transformed. The man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. All the work that God is doing in our lives right now is his spirit rules in our hearts. It's to make us Christ-like, right, Christian? And what we're told there of Christ is he was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There's something that's a work of God that is moving us more and more towards a place of humble, downcast sorrow over the fallenness that we see everywhere here now. Now, quick disclaimer. God made us all with a whole range of varied emotions. That's true. And so, it is also true and perfectly fine and good to have a sense of humor. Really. And there are tons of places in the Bible that command us to rejoice. Over and over again. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's true too. That's true. And this beatitude itself ends with, if you've noticed, it ends with comfort. So, this mourning, this sorrow, don't think that it is the, the only or the final word on what a Christian is to be like. It's, it's not. We are not, don't misunderstand this and don't misunderstand what I'm saying here to think that we are supposed to be what our attitude, what our demeanor is supposed to be is some sort of a constant down-in-the-mouth miserableness. Sorrow is not the final word. However, sorrow is the first word. It starts here, mourning. This is the second sentence of this long sermon. Jesus, if not right out of the gate, the first step, the second step, mourning. It's something we have to notice and have to reckon with because a whole lot of us who are Christians even, and certainly the majority of the world, we instinctively want to skip all of this. You probably even have already felt it in yourself this morning as I'm going on just with what I've said so far. You want to skip this part. We don't want to deal with anything of sadness and sorrow. We want some positive, encouraging K-Love music. <laughs> don't we? There's no radio station. Here's the morning music. We want a positive and encouraging and uplifting and nice message. If we do that, if we skip to try to get to that, 
and I think it's probably fair to say not if, but when, when we do that, when we skip onto that, we end up cutting off our nose to spite our face. Or to use more biblical language, we heal the wound lightly. You never get down to the bottom of the real problem to fix what's really going on. Instead, you just kind of slap a happy band-aid on the surface, and I can't see it, so it's all gone, right? Everything's good. No, it's not. It was shallow and a weak happiness that results from that. So ask yourself if this isn't true, maybe even true of you. And again, I need to point this out again, just like last week, this is not a finger-in-your-chest confrontation from God. So don't hear it as, uh, so there. Instead, you have to deal with you before God if this is going to be of any benefit to you. This is about you dealing with you before God for benefit to you. So ask yourself, isn't the world, and maybe even us, maybe even you, very busy chasing the good life by trying to improve our circumstances and add to the bank account and entertain ourselves and seek out experiences and relationships and thrills and travel, all the while working really, really, really hard to get rid of anything negative, to avoid it, cover it up, expel it from our lives. That's how we're going to get the good life, we think. And what results from that is a shallow, a, a superficial happiness, if you can even call it that, that actually feels a whole lot like, more like discontent as it needs more and more and more to feed it as it fades, and it shatters in the face of any kind of tragedy. It's a happiness that we built as we gather together all of this life. We gather together. It's a happiness that looks grand until... And then you got nothing. That's what a lot of the world, and maybe even some of us, and this is not, I'm just asking you to think about you. In that spot, when we live in that spot, we are not in the spot of profoundly, deeply contented righteousness and joy. That's not who we are. People who are like that, who live in touch with another world, and when that happens, say, ah, that hurt, and I'm okay. That's the kind of people that we want to be. That's the good life. In this world, we will have trouble, and when the trouble comes, are you, ah, that hurt, and I'm okay. We want to be that. We're called to be that. And that starts with mourning. We are those who mourn over sin, seeing it for as awful as it really is. Think back to last week. This is where we have to start. This is why these two Beatitudes are so closely connected. One and two, the beginning of the sermon, are so closely connected. We live here on the surface of the earth in this little crust of the earth between the height of Everest and the bottom of the Marianas Trench. If you were here last week, I already said all this. That little strip of life right there in comparison to the rest of the earth is like a postage stamp stuck onto a beach ball. 
and 1.3 million Earths fit into the sun, and several hundred billion other stars are in our Milky Way galaxy, one of two trillion galaxies. Postage stamp on a beach ball, 1.3 million, several hundred billion, two trillion, and God made all of that and calls all of that by name and sustains every single one of them as they rotate and burn. He made them all by his own wisdom and power. He is vast and almighty and omniscient and righteous and just and holy, holy, holy. That's what the prophet Isaiah heard when he caught a glimpse of him. You read about this in Isaiah 6. Isaiah caught a glimpse of God in his throne room and the place smoked and shuddered. The angels cried out, holy, holy, holy. It smoked and shuddered. Mount Sinai had when God first drew near to Moses. It smoked and shuddered. Not only the sight and the sound, but the smell and even the feeling of being undone by shaking. All of it is communicating to the most holy men of the Old Testament, you are not holy and you do not belong here. And Isaiah knowingly responded, Woe is me, for I am a sinful man, and I have come near to the Holy One. That God, in that one true God, the only God there is in all the universe, who made it all and sustains it all, in him there is no unrighteousness, no, none at all. And he says to us here in our little bitty solar system, stuck in the middle of our postage stamp, you shall have no other gods before me. Christian, Consider to your own self, not like this. Ask yourself about you before God. How you doing with that? No other gods before me. Is that God the only God there is? The single creator and sustainer of all the universe the one who gives you each breath you draw, is he the one you loyally love with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind, all your soul, all of your all? Is he supreme in your attention? The one you are most focused on understanding and following and obeying and pleasing. You know what that kind of focus is like because every single one of us have had human relationships or had jobs or hobbies that we are extremely into and are, are zeroed in on getting all of the different permutations, understanding it all, geeked out on it, we sometimes say, focused. You know what that's like with a job or, or a hobby or a person? Is that God for you? Above the job, above the hobby, above the other people, all of your all, he says. He's given you his word in a book that's in your own language, and you probably have several of them in your own house. Is what's written in here most important for you to know? Is what he says about himself here most important for you to, to abide by? Is what he commands most important for you to follow? Is what he tells you he values what you value? And what you, you hope to increasingly value over time is where he points where you want to go. 
All your all, no other gods before me. If you're a Christian, to some degree, partially, the answer to all those questions is partially, yes. Because God's done something in you. God's changed you. He's, he's opened your eyes to something. He's, he's turned you so that you see, like, yeah, that is true. That is valuable. That is precious. That is good. And to some degree, the answer is yes. But also, to some degree, the answer is no. Is it not? You're still a fallen sinner and will be until you die. And when you face that and think about that, you, about you before the Lord, to some degree, Christian, does that not grieve you? Because you know it should be otherwise. Let yourself engage with this. Even right now here in this brief moment, it'd be better to do it if you had longer and you were by yourself, but those generic questions that I just asked, those need to be fleshed out. They become real then. So maybe, maybe run back through just this morning. Christian, run back through just this morning or maybe last night or yesterday. If you talk through that one action, or talk through that one thought or that whole thought pattern or that one activity. Talk that through with God. Maybe just right now. That one thing. Is he smiling and approving? Or are you trying to hide that and desperately trying to rationalize it somehow? I'm not asking you some people, you've heard this probably. I'm not asking you to run your life on the screen up here in front of all of us. I'm just saying you before God, you. All of it running before him as you sit there with him, the one who made two trillion galaxies and is worthy of first place in your life and calls you to be holy as he is holy. Husbands, love your wives like that God in Christ loves you. Do not serve money. Don't serve mammon. Serve that God, him. Don't give in to sinful, sinful sensuality. Be pure like the Lord is pure. Love your neighbor as yourself in service to God. Be kind and compassionate towards one another his hands and his feet in service. Don't return reviling for reviling, but entrust yourself to God who judges justly. Set your mind on things that are above. Speak the truth in love, and on and on. God's requirements of you. Speaking to his people here, there is no fire of judgment moment here in this. But Christian, run yourself through your own mind before the Lord and do you not mourn over what you find in you? You fall so far short still. And what's worse, what's worse, think of this, as I just dance quickly across some of those very simple requirements, I mean, you've heard all those in the Bible, just 
skip across the surface of it, and you see your failure there in one or the other, what you're actually seeing there is evidence of something worse. It's, it's actually something worse. It's not just the problem that we sin. The problem is that there's something in you that still wants to sin. All those things I just skipped across the surface, and if that one ticked off or that one, that one caught your attention, nobody hijacked you and made you do that. You did it. Your mind went there. You, you ran off to that. Something in you wanted to do that after all that he's done for you in Christ and all that he's promised for you that is so, so certain for now and on into tomorrow and next year and forever, something in you alarmingly and grievously, right? Something in you alarmingly still prone to wander away, still prone to leave the God you love. It breaks your heart if you think about it. He stands there wearing a crown of thorns pierced for you, and you, along with Peter, just say, Jesus, I don't know the man. I swear to God, I don't know him. Something in you is still significantly wrong. Does that not grieve you? He's worthy of your all, and you know it. And to walk with him closely and obediently and dependently and trustingly, you've tasted that and you know that it's sweet. You know the feel of it. And to walk away from all that is evil and foolish because it's wrong and you know it and it deprives you of where, of where life is found with him. It, it's still there. Sin is so, so very sneaky and so deep and so clever. And so there. crouching right next to you, ready to have you. And it's all over the world all around us. I'm going to say a whole lot less about this because we usually think a whole lot more about this. But it is everywhere out in the world. Ruinous sin runs the world and afflicts everybody around us, those we love. It preys upon and destroys people and societies all around and dishonors the good God we love. All around us is darkness, and sin stands behind every tragedy, every shedding of every tear. Every story in the newspaper is somehow connected to the darkness. Are you angry about that? Indignant? Or grieved and mourning? I think it's fair to say that the dominant perspective that the world sees from the church, probably because it's the dominant perspective we push forward sometimes these days, is one of anger at sin. But Jesus wept over Jerusalem, did he not? As we already saw in Ezekiel, God favorably marked apart those who were grieved over all the abominations they saw being done around them. That's the right God-approved response, God's people mourning. And God then, not God's people, God then carries out the judgment in his time and in his way.
That's the characteristic that Jesus holds up before us, his people. Verse 4. That's what befits us. Blessed, congratulated, and envied for your good situation. Blessed are you who mourn. Now you know there's a part two to this. And there is. Sit there for just a second. And check yourself one last time. And again, not finger in your chest confrontation, but just ask yourself, even at this very last second here, are you a little pissed off at me? Why? This is the truth. No finger in your chest confrontation. You before the Lord. We are broken and fallen. And the Christian, the Christian's heartbroken over that in me, that I'm this way. To have that pointed out, to see that, blessed are you. To see that, and actually not just know it intellectually, but to, to feel it. Be wet-eyed as you consider that. Oh, blessed are you, congratulated are you. Because, here's the second half of the beatitude, then those ones, those are the ones who are comforted by God. In this life and in the next, Blessed are those who mourn, for those who mourn are the ones who are comforted by God in this life and in the next. That's the good situation we end up in, comforted by God. And that does not mean just something so simple as like a warm hug and a pat on the back. Sometimes we think of comforted like that because that's what we can and do do to one another. We often find a person in a terrible situation and we can't do anything about it but we can be encouraging. And that's a good thing, but God means more than that here. He's talking about the reversing, the opposite of. He's through all these beatitudes. It goes one way, and then it goes the other way. Blessed are you with this, because this is what happens, the opposite, the reversing. Rather than weeping, you will rejoice. Rather than groaning, you will sing. Rather than mourning, you will be comforted. The good life, in other words, what everybody wants, comes only to those who first mourn. How is that? When we and as we mourn over sin, we are humbled in a righteous sense in a righteousness sense. Notice the connection here to the last beatitude. The, the, the previous beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, I might call that humbled in a personhood sense. We'd see, we see this God and we realize I am so small, I am so weak, I am so incapable of, my, my person is small, I am finite. This one, though, is saying not only finite, but fallen. 
There's, there's an additional, there's a difference there. It's not only he's big and I'm small, but he's holy and I'm not. We look at that and we see there and we see our sin there and the sorrow, what, the sorrow, you want to put a different word on it, what there is is a sense of, of shameful guilt there that is awful and appropriate. And we mourn. It's the second precursor that God builds into a person as he's trying to get a person to the right frame of mind before you become a Christian. Again, it's not how you become a Christian. It's a necessary precursor. So God has worked this into you. It's part of your Christian experience. As you hear all this, you're grieved by it. And when you're grieved by it and ashamed of it and you, you see that ugliness in yourself, what's the next thing you do, Christian? Lord, I'm sorry. Does that not rise almost automatically in you? Lord, I'm sorry. Some of us probably already thought that, been thinking that now. Lord, I'm sorry. Please, is there any way you can forgive me? And the first time you said that, he led you right to Christ, right to Christ crucified and said, yes, indeed, there is a way. Only one way, but this way works. There's your shameful guilt, and I will take that and I will nail it to the cross. and I will lift it off of you and bestow on you instead forgiveness and honor. You are alienated. I will draw you back into relationship. Yes, indeed, there is a way that I can make it right. Not you, me. I can make it right. I have made it right. Come. The first time this guilt struck you, you came to Christ and were saved. That's the glory, that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the beauty of the ongoing gospel, moment by moment, day by day, for the entire rest of your life, on into eternity. It's the continuing story of God's grace. Ashamed and grieved, you are led into repentance. And repentance is a reaching out to God for help. And what you find there is a gracious and good and loving and helpful God. Those are the ones who are comforted. Repentance now for you, Christian, is the certain path to experiencing forgiveness and fellowship with God. And we need to hear this over and over and over again. It's here in this verse, but have we not already seen Jesus up in chapter 4 and John in chapter 3 command repentance? We need to hear repentance over and over and over again because what happens to us as we Christians, as we live through life, we tend to overemphasize in our minds, in our hearts, to overemphasize our eternal, spiritual position before God as forgiven one. We, we know that, we say that, I'm a forgiven one, and what happens then is we end up overemphasizing that, we end up taking that for granted, and we walk then into life not taking seriously our remaining sinful daily condition. Day by day by day, the sin that still is here in me. I, I skip that because I'm forgiven of that. But what happens is, is skipping that, not thinking about it, I don't fight against it. And barrier grows, crust grows, shell grows. 
and I begin to assume something. Why are you indignant at the world trapped in all of its sin? Because I'm not. I'm good. That, that's, that's where that comes from. Our indignation towards the world is an assumption we're better than the world. Because a crust has grown and I too much emphasize. I'm a forgiven one and don't realize I'm still a sinner too. Just like them. We need to and certainly must remember I'm a forgiven one. Absolutely, I probably said it half a dozen times already today. You're a Christian. He's not condemning you. But to set that aside for a moment and realize I'm actually still a regular sinner. Moment by moment, day by day. I'm a forgiven one of this moment, in this thing, in this situation. Amazing grace that would save a wretch like me then becomes actually believed theology. Amazing grace that would save a wretch like me. I shared this story sometime back, maybe you've heard this, involves a little bit of knowledge of sailing. A sailing ship, think of a boat, mast. In the bottom of the boat, there is weight, ballast. Think of how the boat works. If there's a tall mast and a sail, it would tip over if it was a flat bottom boat, but the weight holds it down and keeps it from tipping. Got that? An old, old Christian wrote, I keep my sin ever before me. It is the ballast in the boat of my life that enables me to throw up a tall mast with a vast sail to catch the fullness of the grace of God to drive me on far and fast. tall mast, the full sail, can't catch the grace of God, it'll tip over, it'll sink. You need something in the bottom, ballast, and he points out, as this points out, that ballast is my sin, right in front of my eyes, always. Not because you want to like beat yourself up, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, but because you want to say, amazing grace, I thought grace was something because it forgave me of that. If it forgave me of that, amazing. It forgave me of that. It forgives me again and again and again and again. Ama- stunning, shocking grace. Who is this God that he would say to me, I clean all of that away, and actually you have no idea how much more there is. I clean all of that away. I clean all of that away. I put all of that on the cross. I bestow on you favor and honor. No good thing do I withhold from you. I love you. I love you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Come. I don't know who you are. Come anyway. Come. Amazing grace, which you don't get at all if you walk around assuming, I'm a pretty decent guy. I mean, I'm, I'm, I used to be a sinner, but I'm forgiven now. Them ones are the problem. Christian, behold your sin. Mourn over it. Because you want the good life of basking in the vast, wide, long, high, deep love of God graciously poured out on you now and for forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Keep your sin ever before you. Mourn over it. That's the one who's comforted. Not by 
soaking in the, I know I'm going to have this conversation. I know I'm going to have this conversation. Twenty-five minutes from now, I'm going to have this conversation. Don't let it be you. <laughs> At the door, both corners of your mouth touching your waist. <sighs> I'm such a loser. Did you finish the beatitude? It's not the last word. It must be the first word. And it must not be the last word. He calls you, commands you to walk in the good life. And the good life is not letting sorrow be the last word. Woe is me. I am an Eeyore by nature, so I live here. I get this. But it's wrong. It's wrong. Let it not be the last word. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Here and now, as day after day after day, you behold your sin and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Is there any way you can help? And he says, yes, behold the glory of the gospel again and me for you again. Come here. And there's the warm hug. Your sin dealt with within you, your sin dealt with, and the sin of all the world dealt with, because you look out and you say with tears in your eyes, oh, what's wrong with this place? And the answer is sin. And God says, I have an answer for that too. Do you realize this is the best answer to the question of the problem of evil? How can a good God allow such bad things to happen? There's lots of ways to address that. The best and final way is, do you have a better answer? I have an answer. This God says, I'm going to come back and destroy every last little bit of evil, wipe the earth clean, and it will be glorious. Come join me if you like. The door is open now. Come join me if you like. That's a better answer than anybody else has. There is an answer. It's, I send Christ, and he says, and makes all things new and glorious. It'll be the Garden of Eden on steroids. Come join me if you like. There is a place coming. There is a place coming where sin will mar nothing anymore at all because it will be all gone. And you will then sit in the vast inheritance kept in heaven now for you who believe, but it will be yours and you will experience it, all of the various permutations of the glorious grace of God, yours, 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 and then the next year, yours, 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 and two trillion galaxies of exploration to follow of the beauty and the marvelous splendor of God. Yours, 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 and not a drop of sin anywhere in it. A glorious creation. Can you see it? Do you long for that with a little bit of a wet eye, maybe? Because that ain't here. I'll have the conversation with somebody here in 25 minutes. I know I will. But all of us are going to look on the internet or read the newspaper about somebody got killed tomorrow. And the war in Ukraine goes on. What's the answer to that? 
I know. Let's get more horses and chariots. Nope. Come, Lord Jesus. And he says, I will. Not yet. In my time, I will. Your mind is refreshed as you sit in this felt experience of the ugliness and the sorrow of sin. And you touch on it and you see your lack and you see the reality and you realize something in me is still broken and he's promised to forgive and make me new. And you look out and you see something here is still way broken and he's promised to come and make it all new. To know that is a great benefit. Not up here. All of us know that up here. And it does you zero good. To feel it gives you rest and hope and joy when the crap rises. Blessed are you who mourn. Yours is the comfort of Christ. Let me pray. Father, would you comfort your people? We speak to each one of us the beauty of your forgiving and of your, of your steadfast, loyal love for us. We may turn away from you, but you do not abandon us. You can't abandon yourself. You live in us. Speak to your people, even especially particular ones who are at this very moment struggling with shame or guilt. Comfort them. Give them the joy of the Lord to be their strength. Speak to us also, Lord, your people, about your certain promise to make the world new, to wipe away every sin and every ugliness and every tear. Comfort your people with that truth. Help us to feel it, to rest in it, to trust it, to trust you. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Thank you for being a great God who was holy and who was gracious to condescend, to save, and to make all things new. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.